0: Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this uh, lecture this evening. My name is Kevin Featherstone. I'm the head of the European Institute here at the LSE. Uh, The European Institute has an extensive program of public lectures under the title Perspectives on Europe. And in fact, this year is our 25th anniversary, so we've had quite a few of these lectures and quite a few of the topics, even though some of the themes tend to recur over time. Uh, We've hosted many politicians, public figures, academics, uh, writers uh, from many different uh, countries. And I'm very pleased to uh, introduce our speaker this evening, to give us a new focus on the challenges that Europe uh, faces. Giles Meritz is a former journalist who went on to found a think tank and edits a policy journal. He worked for the Financial Times for 15 years as for- foreign correspondent. He founded the think tank Friends of Europe in Brussels, and he edits the journal Europe's World. As you uh, are aware, he's now written a new book, with the intriguing title, Slippery Slope, Europe's Troubled uh, Future. It could hardly be more topical uh, today. I'm very pleased to say that copies of the book will be available for you to purchase outside this lecture theatre after the lecture uh, is over. And if you'd like Giles to sign a copy of the book, Giles will remain in the theatre for a little while and you can buy your book outside and come back in to have it uh, signed. As usual with our lectures, uh, we have a Twitter hashtag for the lecture and the hashtag, as you can see on the screen in fact, is hashtag <coughs> LSE Brexit uh, vote. There is on the LSE website a Brexit blog where you can see many different opinions on the referendum uh, question. Giles will speak for 20 minutes or so, and that should give us plenty of time for discussion and questions and answers uh, afterwards. So as we prepare for the British referendum, and as I think some of you at least are in the middle of exams and thinking about uh, Europe in at least some of your uh, courses, um, we are very much looking forward to what Giles has got to say tonight in terms of um, the slippery uh, slope. So if you could uh, please join me in welcoming our speaker, Giles Merris, and we look forward to your presentation. Giles.
1: I thought I'd, st- I'd stay seated, Kevin, if I may. Um, obviously, we're going to have to talk about Brexit at some point, but not right now. Um, I'd-, I'd like to talk about what I think is a much more serious problem, and that's Europe at large. Um, the, the metaphor that keeps coming to mind as I listen on the radio to the Brexit debate is, is that of a ship, with um, the sort of rats trying to leave the sinking ship and so on. It's, it's not sinking but it is taking on a lot of water. The European Union. It it was a fair weather vessel when it was built, a long time ago. Really, I mean, we're, we're talking about something of origin sixty years ago. Um, and now the, the the water is getting very rough, and not because of the British and Brexit or even eurozone crises and so on. The the weather is getting rough because the global economy is a a very rough place and we're not really used to that sort of competition. So I I wanted to talk first about the the state of the European Union before we get on to the the Brexit. And I could talk a bit about how the Brexit is seen from Brussels. A rather different perspective. But let's first talk about the EU <clears throat> my view is it isn't working. It just isn't delivering the goods. Um, the migrant crisis, of course, uh, focuses a lot of attention on the, the way solidarity, which for a long time was claimed to be the sort of cement of uh, the European project, Solari- solidarity almost disappeared Overnight last summer, and there's no sign of it coming back. Um, we'll see. Maybe, maybe the, uh, the 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 deal with the Turks will reduce the flow of uh, of migrants. But my own view is that um, it's going to continue at much the same level as last summer, um, and uh, with all the political tensions that that's going to produce. So, I mean, first of all, uh, I don't think the European Union's mechanism seem to be strong enough to, uh, to knock heads together between the member states. And also, I don't think the European Union has got the political courage to tell Europeans what they really ought to be telling them, and that is, it's not that we've got too many migrants. We haven't got enough. Europe is shrinking and ageing so fast that we need to take on, well, somewhere between 50 million and 100 million immigrants by the mid-century, which should be roughly the rate of twice of last year's. Um, but uh, Brussels doesn't really have the courage to uh, to say this, even though it's published... Uh, a lot of reports making precisely this point about the demographics and about the aging problem. Uh, Next next failure, the Eurozone. Uh, The Eurozone lacks a political basis. We all know it. We all know that uh, Eurozone governance is the big problem. But again, the European Union, I should say Brussels really, uh, the EU institutions don't have the courage to stand up and say so. So they're they're basically in the firefighting business. Next failure, security. Perhaps rather naively, I thought the Arab Spring was such an alarm bell that the EU would sort of swing into action and its new diplomatic service, the uh, External Action Service, would um, somehow manage to get its act together on a security policy uh, for the Mediterranean Basin a new security strategy. We hadn't had one since 2005, and that was really built for another era. Uh, But no, we we still see the uh, European security framework as being notional at best. That's three failures. Let's go on to two two more. Um, Number four. Industrial policy there really is no European industrial policy. Um, national champions can continue to thrive. The Commission failed to fail to be midwife to the, uh, the great merger of, uh, of, of the two aerospace giants, Airbus and British Aerospace, which would have produced a, a world class something that would have really frightened the American defense giants. But no, the EU did nothing and it fell apart. Um, And I think that's symptomatic of the fact that Europe hasn't really put together uh, a coherent industrial policy at a time when industry is changing so fast. Uh, we all talk about the fourth industrial revolution and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, so far it hasn't actually produced very much in the way of concrete industrial advance. And of course, the uh, uh, apart from Germany, the sort of de of a whole lot of uh, once very strong regions uh, has, has continued and they're being converted into really rather waste zones last weakness and I think it's I don't know, I was going to say the, the greatest it, it, it's perhaps the most worrying and that's the innovation thing and it's allied to, to, in, to the lack of an industrial policy but it's not quite the same Europe as a whole produces half of the great scientific breakthroughs every year, half of the big of the science papers come from European universities, European researchers, and yet on the innovation front, we're nowhere. And a good example of this is this wonder material nobody knows very much about, called graphene, a millionth of the size of a human hair. Enormously conductive, you can make just about anything out of it. Um, There are 55,000 patents taken out um, on graphene. And in the UK, I think there are 55 out of the 55,000. Most are to be found in China uh, or the United States. Um, Samsung, South Korean company, has... 40 times more than the whole of the UK. We're not focusing on how to, how to turn clever ideas, clever research into money-spinning industries. And again, I mean, it's perhaps unfair to, to blame Brussels, but I do think that Brussels should be sounding the alarm much louder on this and I do think, and I can come back to this, um, I do think we should be spending more EU money on that and getting rid of silly things like farm subsidies, which properly belong in national uh, subvention programs. Now, I'm blaming it all on Brussels, and Brussels is, of course, only partly to blame. But let me just say... Brussels is, I think, cowardly, uncommunicative, feather-bedded in terms of the way the Eurocrats have a sort of job for life nearly irrespective of their talents. Brussels suffers from a dossier mentality. It likes dossiers. It hates the big picture. But the big picture is what really matters. And lastly, Brussels is resistant to change. And this is rare. I have a problem with the European Union as a whole, as things, as things stand. Um, I think that the, the global pressures coming in on, on Europe are so enormous that we, we, we can't just sort of sit back and muddle through. Um, At the moment, the European countries account for roughly 34 percent of the global economy, Uh, much more than, say, the Asians, despite all this talk about an Asian century. The Asians is about 22 percent. On present showing, our our 34 percent will by mid-century be 18 percent, and the Asians will be 54%. They'll be far, by far, the biggest economic bloc in the world. And we will have not only shrunk, um, we will also have aged, so that, for instance, at the moment, there are four working-age people usually employed. um, For every one pensioner, for my mid-century, that'll be only two working people per pensioner. And how we're going to manage that I can't imagine because at the moment the pension systems don't work and with that sort of arithmetic, we're in real trouble. There are four European countries at the moment in the top 10 uh, economic powers in the world. In each decade up to mid-century, one of them will drop out, Germany last of course. But by mid-century, there won't be a single European country in the top ten economies of the world. And to so my mind these these are challenges that no single European country can cope with. So we have the awful situation that I've described what I think what I think is fair to say is a European Union mechanism that is no longer fit for purpose. It was designed for a different set of problems and isn't delivering. At the same time, it's useless to say, right, walk away from it. Um, uh, We can do better on our own, because I don't think we can. I don't think there's any single country, any single government capable of confronting the sort of challenges we're looking at from the BRICS I, I also think that what is striking, if you look at Europe in a global context, is the different speeds. Um, the Chinese economy is now twice the size it was uh, ten years ago. Um, ours is smaller, but the other striking thing about ours is how long it takes to, to reach a decision on anything. Um, the Chinese are building what is it one Manhattan every two years and we're we're still quarreling about uh, an infrastructure program of 315 billion euros over 10 years to which not many of the private sector banks have subscribed the 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 contrast between what's going on in the rest of the world and, uh, and Europe is, is very striking. And I think it's Europe. Europeans like to think that we and the Americans are in the same boat, and to some extent that's true, but I think that you only have to look at the way the post-2008 recession uh, has been confronted. And you see the American economy is not exactly roaring ahead, but it's looking pretty sound. Whereas we continue to teeter on the sort of edge of slow growth, no growth. And I think one of the problems is productivity. Um, in the late nineties, uh, we were our productivity was increasing at twice the rate of the Americans, and now the table has been turned. And our productivity is about half the rate of the Americans. My, my own view is that this is probably because Americans were much much quicker at uh, at embracing the digital revolution, com- using the computers. And the, while we were sort of sitting there thinking about it, um, but uh, uh, so what to do about all this? My my view, and this is really why I've written this book. It's to say, first thing to do is try and stop being so complacent. And I tried to address in this book ten myths, which I, I think we really need to uh, to demolish. And I'm not going to go through all ten, but uh, just to give an example, uh, the idea that Europe is overcrowded—it's about half as crowded as China. Um, uh, if you if you look at the the the, the, the the, the people per square kilometer figures. You see that Europe isn't crowded at all. What it does lack is good infrastructure. It doesn't have the the, the transport to get the people to the jobs. It doesn't have the housing to house the people when they've got to the jobs. Um, so, in a whole lot of areas, you know, the idea that Europeans are uh, security actors of some sort not true. The idea that we're on the same wavelength as the Americans used to be true no longer. We don't actually share the same geopolitical interests as the Americans. So I, I really think we need to, to sort of wake up to to reality. Uh, and I think that our politicians, and I'm not just talking about Britain, I'm talking about Europe as a well. whole, I think the politicians' self-interest in not admitting to to, to failures um, is playing a major part in lulling us into this sense of security complacency i I try and end the book with what we should what we need to do, and my my first reaction on looking at this to say right, don't do." what you've done before in Brussels and declare some wonderful master plan, not a good idea. Brussels is profoundly unpopular, sometimes for good reason, sometimes because it's getting the blame for things where it doesn't actually deserve the blame, but it's unpopular. So the idea of sort of un- un- unfurling a sort of great big master plan, saying this is what you do, I don't think that's, that's, I don't think that's good politics. What I do think we need to do, though, is to actually start looking at the things you can do. And you can put more money into infrastructure. I'm, I'm a, an unrepentant Keynesian. I think, you know, prime the pump and also meet the, the needs of, uh, of society. Create more jobs. Um, the other things we can do, I think, are also to to rip up the European budget. I mean, I find it irritating when I see the Commission presidents over the last twenty years sort of being very, very shy about saying we need more money and very, very, uh, very unsure of themselves. I think the budget should be something like doubled or tripled. I don't think the money should go on farm subsidies. I think it should go on things like funding uh, immigrant integration and, and getting immigrants into jobs. We have a, a major labor shortage already. Uh, we need more people in work. And I also think that on things like the Eurozone, I think it's ridiculous to have a European Central Bank that is a, it's a German creation designed to, uh, to worry about inflation. The Germans have never forgotten getting their wages in the wheelbarrow. Um, it should be like the US Fed. It should have a responsibility for creating, creating jobs um, and for making the economy grow. And a lot of European governments don't like that, but that doesn't mean to say it's wrong. So, get rid of the myths, do things uh, on uh, tackling bit by bit uh, areas which are doable, and get the sort of momentum moving again, that Europe has some uh, some not only some role, but uh, an actually crucial and unique role that these are problems that cannot be fixed on our own. Uh, I said I would briefly talk about Brexit from a a European, from the other side of the channel. Well, most people can't believe it. Um, This is a curious mixture of disbelief and and relief. Uh, The UK has been the awkward squad for a long time and tends to uh, talk with a tone of voice that frankly irritates continental Europe, so there are those who are saying, if you want to go, good riddance. The others, I think, more rationally, say, well, how can an open economy like the United Kingdom really expect to f- prosper in a, in a globalized world? How can it expect the city to continue to, to be such a financial, a global financial hub how how can the uh, British not understand that They've they've always had the best of both worlds. They've always had the derogations they wanted. So what what's the beef? Um, I continue to think that when the dust has settled, and I, I personally think that uh, the Remain vote will triumph, not by very much, but triumph. I think there'll be a lot of chaos. But I also think that there is a sort of job opportunity for the British. I do think that uh, if we can shake off this, uh, this sort of semi-detached and rather superior attitude of the ex-superpower, I do think that the British are capable of, of uh, playing a much greater role and certainly on the security and defense side, where I think we're going to have enormous pressures from Africa and around the Arab world. um, I think that there is a role for the British. I think that being semi-detached for the British was, was always rather myopic. I think becoming fully detached would be fatal. Thank you.
0: Well, there'd be plenty of time for questions, but perhaps I could start off with uh, one, Giles. That um, you began by emphasising very much the lack of leadership, indeed the cowardice of of Brussels, and uh, not telling people the the truth, as it were. Uh, there's a sense of um, of blame on Brussels. But in this context, is it Brussels that isn't showing leadership, or is it European prime ministers and presidents who actually are failing uh, their, their electorates in these respects? So, should we blame Brussels, or is it because Angela Merkel is not Helmut Kohl, and um, Hollande is certainly not Mitterrand?
1: I um, mean, this is an invitation to open a blame game. Um, I I think both need to be held accountable Uh, I I think that coming out of a recession uh, with populist parties around Europe snapping at their heels it's not surprising that heads of government are running scared Um, and it's reprehensible and it's it's the difference between being a politician and a statesman and we are short of statesmen there's no no question about it um that doesn't put Brussels in the clear the the heyday of the European project was obviously the the Delors years um from the mid 80s to the mid 90s um Delors actually made rather a lot of mistakes, but I think he, he did one thing that really established him as the key figure in European politics. He named and shamed. He was very happy, actually he had a taste for it. Um, he'd, he'd been a very minor French politician uh, finance minister that tend to be every two years change um, he came to Brussels as a sort of rather unassuming surprise candidate I think nobody opposed him because nobody knew him um, and I remember going to interview him be- before he took over the job at the commission he was on a sort of exploratory tour and I thought he was a bit naive. He looked a bit like a country bank manager. Um, and he said, I've got this idea. I, I want to really do something about the single market. And I sort of hid a, a rather cynical grin. But when he got the job, he didn't hesitate for a moment when governments had signed up to something to call them to account and to do it publicly. And he would do it in two stages. He'd ring Finance Minister X or Prime Minister Y and say, um, I'm worried that I need, I may need to include in my next speech a reference to your your problem. And uh, that tended to produce quite good results. When it didn't, for instance, and in the, the famous occasion that everybody remembers in Britain, of course, is when the law went to Brighton to, uh, to address the Trades Union Congress uh, that year. And he denounced Thatcher um, in <laughs> rather vivid terms for having signed up to Social Europe and now having betrayed it. She never forgave him, of course, but it didn't matter. He, he already had the whip hand because he'd got the government's He got the governments to heal. And he was the last one to do it. And they've never made the same mistake since. Nowadays, the the horse trading about who will be president of the commission is something horrible to behold. Actually, you can't behold it because it's secret. And um, there, there are two criteria. One is that you need to be a former prime minister. Yeah, fine. The other is... You mustn't be a troublemaker. And if you look at the identities of the last um, and the the present uh, presidents of the European Commission, they all meet criterion one and two. And the the result is that uh, the Commission has, over the years, there have been reforms, sort of minor reforms, boring reforms, and what they have done is to reduce the Commission to being a secretariat and not an executive, and a secretariat of governments that disagree with each other on a lot of fundamental issues, whereas before the whole idea of the Commission was they would be the honest broker, they would knock heads together, they were the guys you could trust to tell it like it is.
0: Thank you very much. Well, we now have the opportunity of you uh, asking questions. There are colleagues with uh, microphones, so could I simply ask you to uh, put up your hand and say who you are and then come fairly quickly to the question, please. Could we take the gentleman uh, here uh, in the blue seat? Uh,
2: I'm Kevin Darcy. I'm also a journalist and I've been writing about Europe possibly a little bit longer than you have, amazingly, (laughs) Uh, but uh, to little avail. Uh, But I have one fundamental question. You talk about what we Europeans can do. Well, the point is we Europeans have never been able to do anything. You talk about the selfishness uh, of politicians and the indifference of politicians. It's because we we have a union of nation-states. We do not have a union of people. And I would suggest that is a fundamental problem. If that problem were resolved, I don't really know how, I think most of the other problems would go away because the initiative would be coming from where it should be coming from. Do you agree? <laughs>
1: um, up to a point, Lord Copper. Um... What you're disappointed in, apparently, is the absence of a super-state, a single political entity that is able to take rapid decisions just as a nation-state does. Um, We're a long way from that, but I think I'd make two points. The first is that Europe has come much further than you seem to want to admit. Um, Travelling around outside Europe... I'm always struck by the, uh, if you like, the respect of uh, countries, if you're in Asia or Latin America, and they say, quite remarkable the way you Europeans actually got it together. Now, a lot of that is things like trade. Um, But also single market, the fact (laughs) that we do have a sort of soft power in the sense that our standards... If if you want to trade around the world, you better be pretty careful about observing European standards. And the the, the social dossiers, I think, uh, mark uh, a, a constant progress over the last thirty forty years. It's not the superstate, I agree, and I don't think we're going to get the superstate. I mean sometimes when I look at the problems I wish we had a super state but what I do think we can aim at is a much more effective much more efficient political mechanism and at the moment I, I you just don't see it you you see you see a secret legislature called the council of ministers I mean up outside Pyongyang I think it's the only Legislative mechanism, where you can't find out who said what. I think that's disgraceful, and I think the idea of saying that the European Parliament is there as a sort of democratic um, mechanism, I think I think that's wrong as well. I mean, because of the first of the um, various types of proportional representation. Basically it's the the party backroom boys who decide who is in the European Parliament. Um, I personally think that we should go back to a double mandate. I'd much rather see a a position where um, people in European uh, committees, in national parliaments also had a, a, a seat in the European Parliament. Because at the moment, MPs, deputies, whatever they want to call them, don't know anything about Europe and it's pathetic. Whereas the MEPs know everything about the sort of minutiae of, I don't know, fisheries policy or whatever, uh, and know nothing about real politics uh, except, except the, the, the one-third or so MEPs who are now actually Eurosceptic, and they, they know quite a lot about big politics. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Other questions, uh, please? Could you take the gentleman in the white shirt? Uh,
2: <clears throat> thank you. Um, David Buchan, Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, and a former colleague of Giles.
0: I'm
1: writing about Europe for longer than me, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Makes you feel very Not young. Of... <laughs> <I remember. laughs>
2: thank you. Um, um, so, uh, thank you for your um, uh, Cassandra like warnings about, um, uh, about Europe's decline. Um, I hope to some extent that they're, they're heated, unlike Cassandra's warnings. But there are... Um, uh, the, the most striking um, aspect of your talk, I don't know for, about your book, is your clarion call for more migrants, not less, more immigrants, not fewer. Um, and I wonder... It seems to me there are a couple of difficulties there which you, you haven't addressed in your talk, but you may do so in your book. And one is how do you... How do you uh, marry that um, uh, hoped-for influx that you, um, yeah. you espouse with the high levels of unemployment uh, in many countries? which are a result, not really of EU policies, are they, in a macroeconomic sense to do with the Eurozone, they probably are, but they have arisen actually before that to do with the, the way that uh, the labor markets are structured and the way that welfare systems in a lot of countries, uh, particularly on the continent, are, are constructed. Um, so, how do you marry it with a high unemployment? And secondly, you were calling for um, much more money to be spent uh, on uh, integrating migrants. And it is rather amazing that no, apart from the three billion to be found for tur- to to pay Turkey off, in a sense, that no no extra money seems to be found. Um, and that's obviously partly to do with the the multiannual. Uh, budget uh, structure, which has now existed for the past twenty quarter of a century, yeah. which is very rigid and inflexible, but it did at least save um, uh, save Europe from the the annual budget rows that you and I remember uh, when we started off reporting Brussels okay. uh, so uh, well that 's another problem okay yeah.
1: thank you thanks David. Um, let me Let me try and get my thoughts together on this the the first thing is <clears throat> i don't think our labor needs have very much to do with the unemployment problem. I think we're looking at two separate problems and i 'll try and explain why um, the The demographic problem started to become pretty clear to people at about the turn of the century um, in 2010, a wise man's group headed by Felipe Gonzalez went away and sort of scratched its head and talked to people and came back with this report that said, roughly, you're going to need 100 million people uh, if you don't start importing people, and that was families and all, not just workers, huh? uh, if you don't start importing people at that rate, the active labor force of the uh, European Union was going to drop uh, rather dramatically. Uh, The Americans reckon that it's the size of the labor force that fuels the economy, fuels growth. And you find a lot of people in the United States worried that increased controls on immigration there are actually starting to push back the uh, the growth rates. We have a labor shortage in Europe at the moment. It's nothing to do with the, the mismatch problem that is producing uh, a lot of structural unemployment. I and mean, structural unemployment, I think, is coming from two areas. Um, one is industrial change. Um, we're seeing what were labor intensive industries that have been going progressively out of business, um, and uh, that's been producing uh, a high, uh, a sort of high sludge of unemployment, if you like. And then there's the youth problem, which is I mean, we could spend a whole evening talking about youth unemployment because, first of all, young people do get jobs, it's just taking them a lot longer to get a job than it used to and than it should. So there's a sort of frictional unemployment there. Um, we, 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 we clearly have to do something about uh, addressing the youth unemployment, but we also should, should stop talking about it as being, people keep saying, oh, it's 50% in Greece, Actually, it's about 18% increase. The reason being that there are two ways of calculating unemployment. I'm sure you know this. The ratio and the rate. You're much better looking at the... Un- and Eurostat does both. But, of course, our colleagues in the fourth estate never bother with the smaller rate. Uh, they much prefer the big picture, big big figure. And uh, the, the reality is that... EU-wide youth unemployment, that looks like 23, is actually about 9.
0: Okay, Uh, but if you were um, a young journalist sat in the audience listening to uh, your presentation, you might say that by June the 24th we could have voted in the UK to come out of the European Union and that one of the biggest factors in the referendum campaign is the fear of immigration. So it may well be, and I would quote a LSE study on the matter, that the macroeconomic effect of immigration into the UK is uh, significantly positive. Absolutely. It may be that those macroeconomic, uh, that, that macroeconomic evidence uh, can be presented. But, of course, in the referendum today, uh, it is the sensitivity, the public perception of immigration which could have a huge political consequence so if you were a journalist sat in the audience reporting yourself you might say, gosh 100 million more uh, people Um, how many many Brexit votes will that uh, encourage?
1: Well I I hope this young journalist uh, sitting in the audience isn't working for the Financial Times (laughs) because the idea of repeating uh, these these economic heresies, um, I find it absolutely baffling that uh, immigration should should be of remotest interest to British voters because the immigration that you've had so far has been from other EU member states, chiefly newcomer countries, uh, Eastern and Central Europe, Baltic states and so on, and they are responsible for the UK's relatively healthy growth rate. They are the ones who've been fueling the British economy. And the idea of wanting to, to get rid of them is something I find very difficult to understand.
0: Yes. This is a period at the LSE when we're into examinations and um, on occasions we have uh, resits, etc. Well, the referendum is a one-off And it may may be that we can present all of the economic evidence to show that actually uh, the British are mistaken on uh, the impact of immigration. However, it's the perception which is motivating people. So you may say that uh, you find it remarkable that uh, the British electorate should be remotely interested in the immigration issue, but it's emotion rather than the head, isn't it?
1: Yes, but um, it seems to me that, that that is a criticism of the British political class, isn't it? That they don't seem that they seem to want to use uh, immigration and jobs as a sort of as a whip to to bash each other with, rather than as a as something to to debate sens- sens- sensibly. Yeah, good.
0: Thank you. Other questions? Uh, we have well, first of all can we take the gentleman here then we'll come to you can we take the gentleman here first please
3: good evening Uh, my name is Kevin Masser I'm a business analyst across the way in the city Um, deal with a lot of data but not economic stuff Um, just looking into that last point but also a bigger issue where you say it's the British political class but we've just seen the Austrian presidential election we've seen Marine Le Pen and it doesn't take long on the internet to see the same message being broadcast by Le Pen, Trump, Austria, and now Boris Johnson. And yes, it's economically illiterate. However, it's gained a big foothold, I think partly because of social media and partly because people are suffering the failings of distribution of growth and wealth and they're looking for someone to blame so they're hungry for excuses so why not blame Brussels, why not blame immigrants Um, except that 98% of the expenditure in this country is by the UK government and councils and parliaments and therefore housing, health education is all democratically governed in this country so my challenge is slightly different to the other questions mentioned earlier which is to say I feel that rather than being a failing of having a bigger superpower or a failing of Brussels I suspect there's a failure of the philosophy and the think tanks of the centre left and centre right to provide um an opposition to this populist uh, dogma that's coming across. And I think, I'd I'd like to ask whether you feel that rather than blaming politicians or structures, that we actually have a much bigger challenge this century, which is to actually explain how we can meet the challenges you've outlined in your opening address, and plus everything in your book. I I feel there's a a failing of the philosophy and politics of the centre-left underneath the politicians the politicians just read out what they think is popular and what they're told by the thinkers but that's my view thank you i agree i
1: mean i i have no solution to 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 populism Uh, it's it's clear that the um that the 2008 crisis and subsequent recession uh, did hit and continues to hit a lot of people Who had become accustomed to uh, a very steady improvement in their lifestyles, um, without particular increase in effort. Um, And I think that that obviously started to plateau in some regions to to go down, and that that has produced uh, a, a discontent. And how you confront that without returning to high growth is not easy, and and we're not going to have high growth um, for, to risk going back a bit to, the, to what we were talking about, the demographics. Uh, the, the, the truth is that with a, a static or shrinking labour force, you, you find you've got a ceiling on growth, uh, and we're not going to be able to break through, I don't think, much beyond 1.5% a year. Uh, which is not enough to satisfy people's aspirations. That's the sort of economic stuff, but you're really talking about the political stuff. And I think that what we're also seeing is populism that is a reflection of the quite apparent and embarrassing impotence of the great European project that we were all told was everything was wonderful. It was going to get better and better and better. It was going to be a great big snowball. obviously produced disquiet about the super state, but um, it clearly isn't working. And it seems to me that what we do have to do is uh, we have to reform the European Union, we have to reinvigorate it, and we have to start showing some results. And where there are results, we need to, uh, to to draw people's attention to them, but most of all, I have this feeling that one of the big problems with Brussels and maybe national governments is this terrible being hooked up on good news. The the Brussels bureaucrats only like to tell the good news, and this seems to me balmy. You're much better off telling people the bad news. And then telling them how you're going to fix it, instead of just giving them a diet of sort of rather rather dull minutiae and saying, "Well, it's good news."
0: Thank you. The gentleman here.
4: Um, I'm afraid this is like an FT Mafia conference because I also <laughs> used to work in Brussels for that publication and a friend of the speaker, Judge. Um, You know, you didn't even include the democratic deficit on your list of Europe's problems. It's quite interesting. It seems rather elitist position to start from. Well, uh, I mean... Sorry? The perception of a lot of, we remember the beginning of this um, interesting British experiment with being part of Europe. The, the opponents were largely on the left. They were the Peter Shores and yes. they were the Tony Benz yep. who said this is a capitalist ramp. Once we hand over, the corporations will rule us forever. True. It's quite interesting to see now that the right, or if that's how we describe the Leave campaign – many of them on the right, are actually saying the same thing. There's this perception that it's the kind of Davos elites, the people who turn left when they walk onto the aeroplane, who actually have got an absolute lock grip on this institution, these institutions in Brussels and that frankly the public have absolutely no way of influencing it and it does seem to me that until you resolve that problem um, you're never going to get any kind of emotional engagement with the European project and I'm surprised but maybe it's because you turn left when you walk on an aeroplane that you didn't raise this more prominently Okay.
0: A gentle sort of
1: question wasn't it? Yes that? sir. <laughs> He's a, he's a close friend. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> For business class, <laughs> right. I, I, I agree with you that the democratic deficit is a problem. I also would agree with you, but you haven't said it, that it's partly engendered by Brussels. Brussels sits there smugly doing its jargon-laden business and it's very difficult to understand what it's all about. I also think that there has been a a laziness and an inertia um, amongst national politicians that they... The Brexit debate at the moment is striking to somebody like me. It's all wrong. Whether they remain or Brexit, they don't seem to know anything about it. Um, They haven't bothered to find out. They don't go to Brussels. Um, <clears throat> so how can they be part of, uh, of the sort of European demos and I do find that when I listen to uh, um, especially our sort of British politicians there is a sort of envy a sense that they have been excluded but also they have no interest in being part of the European political system, that the lobby correspondents of Westminster are not interested in the European Parliament, they're interested in Westminster the House of Commons, and and so it goes on. Politicians the same, they don't want to invest in something that they feel outside of, and they don't want to make the effort to get inside it.
0: Thank you. Other questions, uh,
1: <coughs> please? Have we... I thought I saw it.
0: Uh, Could we take the uh, lady in the centre, please?
4: Giles, you said that... uh, I'm Rachel Johnson. I did work on the FT as well, but (laughs) I don't want to boast... I have no Brussels credentials, really. Um, You talked about a failure of solidarity, and I wondered if you could reflect a bit more about security and how the Remainers are using... Europe's security credentials as an argument for telling voters to stay in, and whether you think that Bataclan and Ukraine are a result of Europe's failures on security, and there's absolutely no record to be vaunting on that front.
1: Yeah. Let me. Can I say the second part first, and no, then I can to a second. Um, Ukraine. I think we created that crisis, or had a very heavy hand in it, and I think the whole what we call the beauty contest, do you need to do Ukrainians, do you prefer the European Union, do you prefer Mother Russia? Um, <clears throat> we, we, we sort of blundered into the Ukraine crisis, and we've blundered with Russia ever since uh, the collapse of communism, there is still no EU policy on Russia. The well, Russians are difficult to deal with. They've always been difficult to deal with. That doesn't mean to say you don't actually try. And I think the European Union have been really pathetic in their in their failure to understand the geopolitics, not only of the the near abroad, Russia's near abroad, um, Ukraine, and so on, but in the Arab world. I think <coughs> I think we. Uh, we, we just didn't react in the way we should have. Um, my I expected, and at the time I was writing stuff, nobody was reading, um, saying, look, you've got to have two parallel programs. You've got to have an economic support program because these are highly state-run economies which are failing. And also you've got to have a security framework because these are Arab countries don't actually talk to each other or trade with each other. And you have to try and get them to, 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 to sort of cooperate and collaborate, and you have to have uh, a security quality to that. On the security thing. For years I've been saying to visiting British ministers or whoever, anybody who I thought might be important, you're not getting any value out of being the only real defence player in Europe, the French also, but to a much lesser degree. I mean, we can move a division, the French can move a brigade, basically, although the military in Britain tell me I'm now out of date and we can we can move a brigade and the French can move a regiment. Um, We never got any value out of that in political terms. We never made anything of it. The reason was very plain, of course. It was because um, everybody wanted to say NATO is what's important because this was part of our imaginary special relationship with the Americans. Um, But I I think uh, we've mishandled the security thing. We allowed the, the... the American nuclear umbrella to lull us into once the Cold War ended to cut cut and cut defense expenditure, so we now have got very little left. The Saint Malo agreement with the French has totally evaporated, that we were going to, that was going to be the core of a new security Europe that's gone, but I don't think it's too late, and I do think that. I think that whichever way the Brexit vote goes, there's going to be a lot of chaos and a lot of head-scratching in in Brussels about what sort of an EU is it. And I hope that the the security element is going to be absolutely not top of the list, but very close to the top of the list. Because my own feeling is that (coughs) looking at Africa with a 1 billion population that within 30 years will be 2 billion, and Africa now producing less food per head than in 1960, we're going to have real problems with Africa. Um, and that's going, we're going to be the security gendarme. And I think that that's where the, uh, the British actually have uh, a, 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 a unique advantage.
0: But if you were looking at the foreign policy role of the European Union, then prior to the Ukraine, wouldn't you say there's a small matter of two decades of success called EU, en- EU enlargement of Central and Eastern Europe in a previously um, dangerous zone, uh, surely a major foreign policy success of the European Union to integrate uh, in 2004 and 2007 a large number of transitional economies uh, if we're look, yes, Ukraine, yes, the Middle East, uh, etc. But there's something of the middle portion of two decades of um, quite remarkable success, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I agree entirely that um, the, the enlargement uh, has been the most ambitious, far-sighted policy that Europe really has come up with. I don't think it was foreign policy. I think it's domestic policy. I mean, I I was uh, there very much when the the wall came down and nobody knew what to do with the communists. Actually, I wrote a book about it. Um, we, we didn't know what to do with them. So various people, well, some people said, for God's sake, they're, they're hopeless, leave, leave them alone, which is obviously a very bad idea to have... Uh, a lot of discontented and very poor people uh, milling around on your frontier. That would be very destabilizing. So the next idea was, um, let's give them something called political membership, which meant absolutely nothing. It meant they could come and listen to debates in the European Parliament, and they could be <laughs> they could be sent bits of paper after council meetings. Mm. Um, in, in, eventually, we did the right thing and said, right, in you come. But I don't think that, that in my terms is not foreign policy, that is domestic European policy. Where I think we've been totally lacking, I think we, we, we stood apart aside for far too long on, uh, on the Middle East, and the, the Americans kept on saying, well, no, either, you, either you agree with us or butt out, um, which was hardly a policy. Um, we didn't really address Africa as such because um, the French uh, talked to West Africa, we talked to East Africa. Um, and uh, the, the poorer bits around the minute, the Sahara, we left to their own devices. Um, Asia, we never had any policy and still don't. A um, whole so series of competing, mainly commercial interests. Um, if you... Uh, if, uh, the other day I was in, the other day, the other year I was in Beijing, and I asked a senior guy in the Chinese Foreign Ministry. I said, um, "Tell me, is the European Union ambassador now the most important ambassador?" He said, "What?" <laughs> he said, "No, it's uh, the German, maybe the Brit. Um, no, certainly not the EU person. We don't bother with them."
0: Thanks. We have a question here. Uh, can I just see any other questions before we... Okay, th- right. Good, thanks.
5: Uh, my name is Tom Schiller. I thought and we should have you at, work at, at the one financial question time, from someone who has no FT connection at all. So. Uh, in a way, you've given an answer, a negative answer to the question I was going to ask, which is about whether the slippery slope actually started at some point with the expansion and the enlargement Uh, to 28 countries, at least an enlargement using the same model, i.e., you're either in or you're out, and a failure to envisage either a concentric circle or some different patterns. I mean, that seems to me to have provoked a lot of the problems because we have such diverse economies. It's also led to a totally duplicitous relationship with Turkey where there 's never been an intention to admit them, but we 've offered nothing else other than a sort of waiting room posture so my my question i 'll say it anyways didn 't the slippery slope start when we went over twelve fifteen or whatever number you care to choose?
1: You and I have got different slippery slopes <laughs> my My slippery slope is a is a global economic one where I, I think the question is. Are we in de- we know we're in decline is it relative or is it absolute and I think we are halfway down the absolute one. Your slippery slope is is about the size uh, and the sort of the sort of mythical equality but between member governments of the european union i hadn't actually thought of it as a slippery slope, but I, I mean i i i I think of it as uh unintended consequences. Um when, when the sort of successive Big Bang enlargements were taking place, um I was quite happy and I thought I as I say, I thought this was a far sighted um geopolitical strategy. If we didn't have the guys in, they were going to cause an awful lot of trouble out. Now they are in um I don't know what we're going to do because it's clear that twenty eight governments of such such a horse and rabbit stew um, it's very hard to, to 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 get consensus on so many things. And yet, of course, they've got the rule book. They know that they they're equal, they have vetoes and so on and so forth. QM qualified majority voting, blah, blah. Um, So they're not going to just stand aside and let the big governments do what they want. On the other hand, uh, the big governments are the only ones, really, that have a more global view. Um, And it's worth adding that, to go back to the Ukraine, some of the new member states have got us into a lot of trouble. Uh, if, we're, if we if if we don 't have a russia policy, um try the Baltic states and ask them why, or poland um and the Ukraine crisis and the continuing saber rattling with the Russians all down to those guys that more and more i I see um, some quite convincing um, papers being written on uh concentric circles chiefly because it's seen as a way out of the eurozone problem uh, rather than the wider uh, sort of geopolitics problem or out of the, the the fact that there are too many people sitting around the table um but we are where we are we're not going to get rid of them i mean the the only thing that i've been wanting to sort of insert into this conversation is if the British do vote to go, there will be such chaos, there will be such panic. There's a small part of me that wants Brexit because I fear that if the British remain, it will be business as usual, that the Eurocrats need somebody to hold their feet to the flame. And that if there, if there isn't any reason for them to panic, then it will just keep on muddling through. So, as I say, there's a small part of me that wishes that sort of Samson <laughs> bringing bring the temple down. Okay. Um,
0: we have two questions. If we can make them quick and together, please. Um, do you want to take the gentleman nearest to you here? If you could just say who you are. and Felix Robinson, we'll an occasional FT reader Times. and a
2: migrant in
0: this country. Virtually part okay. of the club. We're running out of time. So the question, please. And, please. and so
2: um, 150 million people have been given democracy without a bullet being fired. I think, thank you, Europe, for doing that. So to absorb another 100
0: million, we've done it once before. Why not? Okay. And could we
6: take the... Is it, yes, Please. Thank you. I'm Helge Sander. I'm a visitor from Germany. Um, I have to comment and a question. A comment would be on the much-criticized commission. Um, Isn't it part of the problem that Commission President Juncker said he wants a political commission? Because actually what you want from the commission is to enforce the rules. And once you're a political commission president or political commissioner, you're exactly in the horse trading that you mentioned just take the recent uh, recommendations on certain countries, not starting any kind of deficit procedure while the, the roots of the pact have been harshly violated, let's say. So is that maybe part of the problem? The other one is on the, on the um, central bank. You said that, yes, maybe it's too much modeled after the Bundesbank, um, but uh, what would you say the bank should do differently towards what it's already doing now from my point of view? with negative deposit interest rates, with the quantitative easing that we've never seen before, are there more tools in the, in the, in the toolbox of a, of a central bank to, as you said, create jobs? Thank you.
0: Okay, good, thank you.
6: Right. Um, Juncker's
1: Democratic you know, Political Commission it's a very good example. I didn't think it was possible to be half-pregnant, but basically that's what, what the commission is. I mean, you, I'm sure you, you being German, and uh, you'll know that the Spitzenkandidat thing was phony. It it made the appearance of being a sort of a, a democratic thing, that whoever won that uh, with the... the, the 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 votes in the last European elections would then be have some sort of democratic status. Well yeah, maybe. I don't think so. But the real issue is is it a political commission? No it's not. It's a whole set of people who are there for five years who've been put there by governments for various reasons. Sometimes they're a cushy job. Sometimes we wanted to get rid of them because they were awkward. Sometimes they were actually even rather talented. Um, they, they, they cover the gamut of those things. Uh, but what it isn't is an executive. And it doesn't even any longer have the monopoly of proposal. Uh, something like 60% of proposals from the commission are actually instructions from the Council of Ministers, saying, why don't you go and put something together? Um, And then it comes back as a proposal from the Commission. There was a time when the Commission was much tougher and much more independent. And to my mind, that's what I'd consider to be a political Commission. But a real political Commission, of course, would be an executive that had to be supported in the European Parliament by some sort of a coalition of to, to give it a majority. Um, and we're a long way from that, and I think it's a shame we're a long way from that. The second thing about the ECB, uh, I'm not going to get into a sort of um, austerity plus minus disc- discussion. Um, well, <laughs> How we how we get out of the present jam i personally think it takes us back to the uh, to, to the demographic discussion we were having earlier but the bank itself i think it's it's an emasculated um, institution um, and i think that the the, uh, the 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 way that um it it's not only unable to take Fed-like policy measures, but is criticised for, um, for 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 the monetary easing um, seems to me to be all all wrong. If you if you want to create a European economy, having 28 different um, financial finance ministries, central banks and uh, economic policies isn't the best way to go about it.
0: Good, thank you. I think we must uh, come to a close. Uh, Now, of course, uh, your appetite has been uh, whetted and uh, the LSE will continue to have public events uh, during this referendum campaign. Let me also say that on June the 7th, the LSE will be publishing a report on uh, its assessments of the implications of Brexit. And we'll have a panel discussion in this theatre. One of the speakers will be Gordon Brown. Uh, So that will be available uh, for you to book online. And it's uh, 6.30 on June the the 7th. But we must uh, uh, close and thank uh, Giles very much indeed for presenting his book. And I'll remind you that books are available to uh, purchase outside. You can come back in and ask Charles uh, to, uh, to sign them. But please join me in giving a very big thank you.